A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter 17. Bathilda's Secret. Harry, stop. What's wrong? They had only just reached the grave of the unknown abbot. There's someone there. Someone's watching us. I can tell. They're over by the bushes. I'm Casper Terkyle. And I'm Matt Potts. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Matt, welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're with us. I'm glad to be here. Thanks, Casper. As everyone now knows, Matt, you're going to be taking over from me as we start again with book one after finishing book seven. But I'm kind of excited that we get some one-on-one time without Vanessa here. I feel like when the cat is gone away, the mice come out to play and you and I can be mice. (laughs) I I don't feel comfortable with this conversation because Casper, you know, (laughs) Vanessa is going to listen to this. Don't you understand how podcasts work? This is... (laughs) You're already a professional. This is going to be great. Um, Before we jump into the episode, a quick thanks to our fabulous patrons, Rita Gomes, Catherine Wu, Anne Nelson, Katie Bottenhorn, and Jennifer Rowland. And a big hello to our local group in New Orleans, Louisiana, run by Amy Troxell. If you want to join their conversations and you live in the neighborhood, go to harrypottersacredtext.com, click on the local groups button, and join the conversation. But for now... Matt, we're going to be reading chapter 17 through the theme of faith, which I'm excited about because you and I always have a rigorous conversation when it comes to this topic. And you're going to start us off with a story. Sure. So I love cities. I love to live in cities. And one of the things I love about cities is that I don't have to drive because I don't like driving. And actually, to be more specific, I don't like parking. (laughs) So despite the fact that I love cities, I don't live in a city right now. Uh, We moved to Cape Cod from Boston just before our first child was born. And that meant that part of my new life was driving into a city routinely and trying to find parking up in Boston, which is not just a nightmare, but my personal nightmare. 
<laughs> right? And so often we would go up to Boston, like I will talk to Colette, and I will, I will spend a lot of time before our journey expressing to Colette my anxiety about parking, how there's not going to be any place to park. What are we going to do? There's not going to be a place to park. How are we going to do this? Because what about the parking? Where are we going to put the car? What if we can't find a place to park, right? And Colette <laughs> will just say, like, it's fine. It's fine. We'll figure it out. Now, here's the thing when she says that to me. I don't believe her. <laughs> when she says we will find a place to park, I still believe that we will be driving around Boston looking for a place to park very far from where we want to be. But I believe in her. I don't believe that the fact of what she has said is true, but because I believe in her, I'm like, okay. And I allow myself to get in the car with her and let her drive me up to Boston because I don't like driving in cities. <laughs> the reason I wanted to tell this as a faith story is because I think that faith is not only or maybe not even about like believing the fact of something. It's about trusting someone. And this is what I want to talk about in the chapter because these two, Hermione and Harry, absolutely trust Dumbledore. They mm. have their full trust in him, but he is not there to tell them the facts. They believe in him, but they don't know what to believe about the state of the world or the, the crisis they're facing. And the trouble, I think, with their faith in Dumbledore, but also I think just faith in general, is when that faith in a person, especially a person who's absent, shifts from trust in them to like transferring that trust into facts which may or may not be true on the ground. Oh, that is so juicy because it also starts to open up this really difficult experience Harry has had when he's learning more about Dumbledore's biography. Okay, well, let's hold on, okay. Matt, before we dive into this conversation, because, you know, some people might not have read the chapter and we need to just help them remember what happens in this action-packed chapter 17. So we're going to do a 30-second recap and you, my friend, are going first. So give us a little recap in three, two, one... Go. So Hermione and Harry are in the graveyard and uh, and uh, they see something move. And is it a cat? It's not a cat. So they, they walk out of the graveyard. They go to the ruins of James and Lily's old house. They see the graffiti. And then this woman, this creepy, smelly old woman comes by. And then they take she takes them to her house. And she goes upstairs. She won't talk to them. But then there's a big fight. And Voldemort comes. And, and, and then uh, the, they escape out of the window and disapparate. And then they have a memory of people being killed. And the wand is broken. And uh, I force it. I don't know. That's it. That's it. The wand is broken. That was great, Matt. What did I miss? Something. Oh, the memory. The memory. But the, that's ah, what I'm here for. That was so important. The me <laughs> Oh, okay. Go for it, Casper. You're welcome. Uh -huh. All right. Will you count me in, Matt? Oh, yeah. Sorry. Three, two, one. So Harry and Hermione have just laid their roses and they're feeling sad and they're walking away, but then they hear this noise and it's uh, this woman and they're like, it could this be Bathilda, but she doesn't say anything. And then only when Harry's near her does she talk. And then later Harry realizes that she's been speaking in parcel tongue and Harry keeps having these flashbacks and he's in Voldemort's body and he's like, hold him. Uh, and then Harry's like, oh my God, Voldemort is coming. But then he's attacked and the snake is like wrapped around him. And then he's being reminded of um, the, the day when Voldemort came and killed him because Voldemort's so excited he's going to kill Harry now. But then Hermione comes to save the day and they escape but the wand is indeed broken. That was great, Casper. I was so anxious about getting to the wand. The wand is crucial because, well, we're going to have to talk about what that represents, but... Well, right, because I was like, I'm, I know I'm going to miss that thing at the end because I'm going to run out of time, so I get to the wand. And so I missed the snake coming out of her face. <laughs> like, yes. what's more important than that, A? And I missed, like, him remembering <laughs> being the, the murder of his parents. Like, the two most important things. I'm like, the wand, the wand, the wand. See, this is why I have anxiety. 
This is, is this going to get better? Is this going to get better? You've been doing this for several years, Casper. Is it going to get easier each week? You're not going to wake up early in the morning worried about it? it your standards just get lower. That's my experience. <laughs> the standards just get lower. <laughs> I want to start with the wand. I know it's at the very, very end of the chapter, but it does seem to have a really outsized importance because Harry kind of pretends that everything will be okay. And he comes up with this quick solution that he'll use Hermione's wand while he's keeping watch. But this breaks him. He's like, if only there was some use, like maybe I could have killed the snake. Maybe, you know, I could have learned something new, but it was all for nothing. It's all my fault. And now I've also broken my wand. I I feel like he's losing faith in himself in this moment because it was his idea to go, he thinks. And now he's lost his weapon, really. His only way of kind of solving this impossible challenge that's been set him. And I wonder if how you introduced faith in your opening story translates in having faith in ourselves as well. Hmm. To me, this really echoes in the breaking of the wand of the death of Dumbledore, right? Which seemed to be all for naught. Like we tried to get the Horcrux, it wasn't actually the Horcrux, and now he's dead and it's for no reason. Again, they're trying to get the Horcrux, or they're trying to get the sword. They go to the house, it's not there, it was all for naught, and it just leads to this thing which is irreparable, can't be put back together. Right. Like literally can't be put back together. They try to repair the wad at the end. It can't be put back together. Right. And so there's an echo of that, like, like we're doing our best here. We're taking all these risks, but we don't even know what we're doing. So when the risks go wrong, they go really wrong. And so I think, yeah, there is some loss of faith in oneself or maybe just a realistic kind of appraisal of the tools one has, right? Like we actually Mm. don't know what we're doing. This is a huge, difficult task. And so like just the the stakes and the the odds are just made really clear. But the thing about it also is just like, it's so much of a wizard's, my sense is that it's so much of a wizard's identity, the wand, right? And to like, this is kind of given to him before he goes to Hogwarts. It's what kind of marks him. It marks his escape from the Muggle world in which he was suffering. It marks his entrance into a community, which was the first one and only one in which he feels at home. It's not surprising to me that the break feels like it goes all the way to the core of him because in some ways it it does, right? Well, and also because in this chapter, Harry keeps seeing things from Voldemort's perspective and he's just relived the loss of his mother and his father from Voldemort's eyes, as it were. And so... There's such a strong parallel there because Voldemort, as he's coming in, looks at James and James has just put his wand down on the sofa. He kills James. He goes up to kill Harry and he's like, oh, I shouldn't have to kill Lily. Like that would, it's not necessary. And she doesn't have her wand, but then she kind of blocks him with his body. And so he kills her as well. And so there's this constant litany of wandlessness and therefore death that happens from Voldemort's perspective. And it feels like Harry is now again, in that place. Now, of course, what's beautiful is that he has also just seen his baby self without a wand withstand Voldemort. And I don't think he sees that parallel. He only sees the weakness, not the strength and that that love protection. Right, because that, because what he has faith in it is in the power of his wand, right? Even though he's just seen that the most powerful thing in the face of even the most powerful wizardry is this power of love. You know, the other thing I was thinking just as you were talking, Casper, was, you know, I started with a story talking about how they have this full trust in in Dumbledore, even though he is not present there to tell them his intentions or to, right? And just the irony that the one mind that he does have access to, that Harry does have access to, is Voldemort's. The one mind that he can actually Whoa. get into, the one whose intentions he knows for moments, like entirely, 
is the one that he distrusts completely. And then the one that he trusts completely, or, you know, even though he's getting this information, the one that he does, like, still wants to, to follow through with and trust, he has no access to that mind. He has no access to that intention. He just has these weird clues and this will and all that stuff, right? And that trust goes so deep that numerous times in the chapter, Harry says things like, do you have the sword for us? Right. Or he's looking at this little mound that's kind of under some cloth. And he's like, uh, he's looking for a ruby. He's looking for the sword. And so he's kind of living in this world, totally shaped by his faith in Dumbledore. And he keeps encountering that it it's not real, or at least his his perception of what he thinks Dumbledore has planned for him keeps not being validated. Yeah. And so... Like, if you do have faith in something and you keep encountering, like, that it's not real or, or, or that it falls short or, like, what, what do you do with that? Like, how long do you keep holding faith in something that's letting you down until you stop having faith? Well, I think when a snake crawls out of the mouth of a corpse, like, that's, <laughs> there's, that's one clue. That's one. <laughs> but, but I think it does speak to sort of, like... Sometimes in this, this is especially true in the Christian world. They speak about worldview, like the Christian worldview or religious worldview. And the, the reason that language is used is because there's this acknowledgement that the set of beliefs you have will actually affect your perception of the world. It affects what you pay attention to and what you don't pay attention to. So think of all the things that, that Harry doesn't pay attention to when he walks into this house. He doesn't pay attention to how it smells like rotting meat. He doesn't pay attention to the fact that Patilla can see them through the invisibility cloak, right? Right. Doesn't pay attention to the fact that he's being spoken to in parcel tongue. But he does pay attention to a pile of dirty clothes. Yeah. Because he thinks the sword is there, right? Like, yeah. all these yeah. facts register with him quickly. But because he has this belief, oh, the, the sword must be here, he's paying attention to the wrong things, right? And, you know, usually the way worldview is used in sort of Christian language is to talk about how what we think shapes the world around us. When we speak about that, we don't mean in a literal way. It just means like what you pay attention to affects the way you see the world around you, right? And we can see this happening with with Harry in a way that maybe not so much with Hermione, right? She's like, are you sure? Is this, this doesn't feel right, right? Yeah. And that gets taken sometimes way to its extreme in the kind of like classic LA book, you know, The Secret, where it's like what you pay attention to actually then shapes reality, which for me goes beyond faith and goes into something else. But what I hear you saying is like, there's lots of things happening out there. You can only pay attention to so much and choosing which reality you want to engage, that there is some choicefulness in that. That's kind of the, the creation of a worldview. Am I getting that right? Yeah, I think that's right. There's a way in which the way we approach the world, our assumptions about the world present us with the world and that, that our assumptions mm-hmm. are always built into. So the question for people of faith or for anybody who wants to have faith in anything is, okay, how do we start to pay attention to the times when that worldview is letting us down? Or more importantly, how do we attend to the people or creatures or whatever that a worldview is not paying attention to or that our worldview excludes or causes harm to, mm-hmm. right? The whole the whole problem is that we will not see it. So it's like parcel tongue, right? Like if you don't actually know what you're not hearing, how do you get yourself to pay attention to what you're hearing and to know that it's parcel tongue? If our worldview affects what we see so much, how do we get outside of it? And it seems to me, mm. to me the only way is to is to listen, to be in relationship with people who have different worldviews. 
So ours can be pushed mm-hmm. and we're forced to pay attention to them and to these different worldviews and to, to live with more faithfulness or fidelity to others. This is suddenly helping me understand the friendship between the trio. One of the things that we see from the beginning is the different worlds that Harry and Ron especially have come from. Hermione, of course, as well. But I'm just suddenly thinking it through this lens that you've offered us that Ron presents a different worldview and that that part of the value and the insights that brings to Harry and and to Hermione is just a different set of assumptions, a different set of references, a different set of priorities even. And that that strengthens not only their friendship, but their kind of strategic collaboration in achieving you know, the destruction of of evil or the the elimination of evil as embodied in Voldemort. So I really like that. Yep. I also feel like this is maybe a weakness of Voldemort because Voldemort assumes that house elves could not, right? Like he is so in his wizarding power, he doesn't even realize he's ignoring the powers and possibilities of others. And that actually becomes his weakness, right? That becomes mm-hmm. the, his vulnerability. Absolutely. So I want to go somewhere in the text that maybe we wouldn't think about on the first reading when we're thinking about this theme of faith. But there's a lot that we see about singing in this chapter. In the previous chapter, we heard singing come from the church. We're now in a pub where people who were in the church and that were singing have now gone into the pub and are continuing the singing because it's still Christmas Eve. And regular listeners will know that I adore Advent and Christmas time for its incredible sing-song opportunities and that we host a black tie Christmas carol sing-along party. And it's not like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer Christmas songs. It's like good English, like Christmas carols. And that's what's happening in my mind in this pub. And I wanted to talk about singing because I often really struggle, like if I'm visiting a church or if I'm with a friend, I'm in a service And there's something like the Nicene Creed, right? A statement of faith, a profession of faith. And these are words that are scripted and people repeat as a congregation. And it it says things like, I believe, I believe, I believe. And like, I don't believe a lot of those things. And so I really struggle to say them as words, but put them in a song and I'm singing with you in like four part harmony. And so there's a difference for me in speaking and singing the same words. And it's more than just like the pleasure of singing. There's a receptiveness for me in singing things that I, that I wouldn't usually say. And that's not something that's out of nowhere. I mean, Charles Wesley wrote those great Methodist hymns as a way of, of shaping people's faith. And John Calvin did the same thing, right? He, he wanted the full congregation to participate. And so that's where a lot of congregational singing comes from within the Christian tradition. And so I just wanted to hear you talk about the way in which a worldview is shaped because you pick it up passively, but there's also ways in which communities can strengthen a worldview. And for me, singing is really one of them. Yeah, I think everything you're saying is true, right? I mean, I also, I come from a Christian tradition which is highly ritualized and I actually prefer like the antiquated language and stuff, something like the Nicene Creed, which is this profession of faith. Like I like using the oldest possible version where the, Mm. The English is Elizabethan and doesn't sound that familiar to me because I feel like I can inhabit that language better when it doesn't feel like my own, right? Mm-hmm. Like if it sounds mm-hmm. a little bit too sincere, then I'm like, well, wait, what is, what is this? But if instead it's like, no, actually showing up and saying this together in this old version that has been said for hundreds of years by other people who also had an ambivalent relationship to it, that's expressing something <laughs> else. That's expressing something less about my sort of cognitive assent to the factual claims made in the creed and more about Mm -hmm. my commitment to the community of persons who 
gather every week, which is like the thing I was trying to say at the beginning about, are, are you trusting the people around you or are you trusting the facts on these particular facts? Interestingly, also, you know, this this thing was originally, the Nicene Creed was really originally written in Greek. And the word that is translated as faith in the Greek is the Greek word pistis, which means something more like fidelity or faithfulness or trust than cognitive assent, then this is a fact I can mm. accept, right? And so one of my favorite theologians, Rowan Williams, has said, you know, what if in the Nicene Creed, instead of saying, I believe, you said, I trust. I trust in God. I trust in the Holy Spirit, right? Like, not about like, these are the facts that I'm going to hold as forensically true or whatever, but instead, like, the world is full of mystery and we only get through it by putting our trust in certain things. And these are the ones, these are the people and these are the spirits or whatever I'm going to put my trust in. It sort of changes your relationship to it. And I think also, I think this is a long way around to get back to your thing about singing. I think when one sings, one can also place oneself in that relationship to a text where like what's important is that we are all singing it, not necessarily that the lyrics are scientifically accurate. Yeah, I love that. I love that, that it's the, because it's so related to how we think about reading as a sacred text, right? It's it's the sense that it's a community gathering over and over again, and that the trust that we have and the, the rigor with which we, you know, engage one another's perspectives, it's the same thing that I'm hearing you talk about in this profession of faith and in the in the act of singing. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it, it also, for me, in the text, in this moment, Hermione and Harry are so outside of that community of singing, and they only get a tiny, tiny taste of that connection to a community in the graffiti that appears outside the Potter's house, right? There's there's a kind of a sign that, that shows up when they come close to the building or the ruins of the building. And Hermione's first instinct is, oh, I wish they hadn't done that. But Harry finds such comfort and such courage in those words of, you know, we're with you, Harry, wherever you are, we're, we're thinking of you. And it just, it felt like song coming through the stone, right? Like that sense of being accompanied, being encouraged and being given, yeah, a sense of comfort even in these horrific circumstances in the, in the same kind of way that they experienced when they heard those friendly voices outside the tent a few chapters ago. That just felt really sweet to me on this reading. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, one of the things about this novel is that it's so isolating or, or these characters are so isolated by virtue of their task. And it's one of the reasons why this is so different from the other novels, right? Like the other novels are about Harry being welcomed into this community. And in this novel, he's you know, he's have his, he has his best friends with him, but they're they're on their own and they're isolated. And that's part of the struggle. That's a, a huge part of the crisis that they're facing. Yeah. And so I think you're right that those those graffiti messages ring out a song, at least in Harry's heart, because it, mm. it restores him to the community that that communal singing draws us into. And and again, I'm I'm drawn back to that graffiti outside the house. Like you have those voices written down of, of people who were doing that reaching out who they didn't know that Harry would ever be there. Right. But it was, it was a place in which they could perhaps do something right. Like that, that there's a, a selflessness and, a, and a, a generosity in those words that, that comes through. And conversely, the moment when things break down in this chapter is when Harry is separated from Hermione, when Nagini, you know, disguised, and I have all sorts of questions, like logically about this whole Nagini as Bathilda thing, but we're going to leave that to one side. Um, but when Nagini kind of lures Harry away from Hermione, that's when the danger comes. And it feels so connected to me because, 
you know, when a community does get together and sing together or say words together or recommit themselves to the values that have brought them together in the first place, when you do that as a community, you don't have to just believe it for yourself. This was one of the things that I remember learning in Div School, that one of the reasons why we say prayers communally or why there are words that are said communally is that you're not going to believe it every week, but you're saying it on behalf of someone else. Or if, if you do feel like you can believe it that day, you're sharing it with everyone. And if you don't, you're able to lean on the person for whom it does feel very strong and resonant. And so I'm, I'm just thinking of that parallel in yeah. this moment. Like I think the, the priority in those instances is that I believe in the people around me. I believe that these relationships are the ones that are going to sustain me, whether today is a good day or a bad day, right? And it's also the mm-hmm. the graffiti on the sign, as you as you say. You know, you think about the first person who wrote any message on that sign was kind of a leap, right? Right. And but then once one message is there, then it becomes easier for the next person, and a community can build. So there is sort of this this leap of faith. Who's going to be the first person who who steps out and says, "I'm here." And we are a community. All we have to do is stand up and say it or sing it in your case, Casper, right? Like, mm. <laughs> but then again, you know, this is, I, I always want to turn back to this. So where are those places that we need to step out in our own lives? Where's the place mm-hmm. where we need to be the mm-hmm. one who writes on the sign and says, I'm here for you. Will you be there for me? Because God knows those places are everywhere. The question is, are we doing it? And how do we do it? And how do we do it in a way that gets the message out, right? To build the community that we need to respond to the crisis that we face. Yeah. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app, and when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Matt, you've been a congregational minister. Like, when people come to you and say, I've been a member of this congregation for a long time, but like, 
I've lost my faith. Or maybe, you know, I, I hear a story very often from people who say, I grew up with something and it's kind of fallen apart and I'm trying to rebuild my faith in a different way. What are the elements of kind of a healthy faith that you've seen? Because it's not about certainty. That's something I feel really clear about, right? It's it's not about, as you said, just assenting to kind of a, a, a five-step plan and like to hell with anyone who doesn't consent to that. How How do you think about constructing a healthy, inclusive, vibrant faith? Uh, well, you might not be surprised to hear I turned to literature, actually. Um, <laughs> like when this has happened in the past, it's rarely, I mean, it's never been that a person comes and says, I have lost my faith. It's usually more like, really, the virgin birth? Can you yeah. can you spell that one out for me? Yeah. And And what I tend to do is I try to turn people away from thinking that their faith should rest or fall upon uh, cognitive assent to a specific historical or factual claim. And the, the analogy I use comes from literature. In the, in the novel, The Brothers Karamazov, um, there's this monk named Zosima, who's this miracle worker. And mm. uh, he's a healer, and people come from all over Russia to visit him and, and to gain his healing powers. And then there's a story early in the novel where a woman comes to him and says that she has this awful malady, the worst possible malady. She's lost her faith. And Zosima says to her, um, you're right. This is the worst possible illness that any human being can suffer. And I'm sorry to tell you, but there's only one cure. You must go and you must love every person you see with your whole heart and without ceasing. Only then can you restore your faith. Whoa. And so I, I, when folks come to me saying, can you tell me about the virgin birth? I usually say, don't worry about the virgin birth. Like who needs love and how can you love them? Because of course, if you do that, I mean, that's the orientation to a different worldview. Like when we start doing that, then you start to see the ways in which people are already doing their best to love one another. You you see the ways in which people respond to that kind of generosity. I guess the, the faith in the community returns. And then from there, it's it's like, well, that's that's what the point is. Yeah. yeah. You know, Capture, one of the things that I, that I think about in this novel or that I, I don't know if it's a question that I have, but one of the things that really bothers me about this chapter is just how strained these friendships are. I, we keep coming back to in these conversations about how the whole thing about faith is faith in others, reaching out to others, holding communities strong, the graffiti, singing, whatever. But what's actually going on in the novel right now is these the most important friendships of the series are under serious strain. Maybe Ron's not Ron's gone. My impression from the end of the chapter is that Harry is resentful towards Hermione for having his had his wand broken. He says he doesn't want to be near her. He wants to get away from her. Right. I have been speaking, maybe we've been speaking in sort of romantic terms about how community fixes everything, but community is hard <laughs> and it's tested by stress and tested by trial. And um, yeah, so it's not really, I just wonder what you think about that or how you, how you read these friendships right now. Yeah. I mean, the first thing that strikes me is that this is not how friendships should be in the sense that they are so isolated from everything else. And just like if we want one person in a marriage to fulfill our best friend, our romantic partner, our encourager in our professional life, like we ask so much of one person that they inevitably fall short. And I think in some ways we're seeing that mirrored within the context of a friendship here that they're having to be everything to each other and they can't. So I really want to give them some grace, I guess, in the sense that like no one could do what they're trying to do. And so within the circumstances, they're doing remarkably well. I mean, even Harry's reaction to the broken wand, right? He could have, he could have thrown a tantrum. He could have explicitly blamed Hermione and he doesn't, he doesn't, he really tries as best he can. 
And it's better than me sometimes to be like, it's okay, we have a solution, I'll just use yours. And they both know that he's deeply angry and frustrated and sad, but there's still care being shown in that instant for me. Does that make sense? It, it does make sense. And I actually think it's it's right that one of the things that you and I have talked about in the past about ritual is that it allows us to behave in a way that we may not necessarily feel, right? Just like I can sing these words, even though I don't may not feel them deeply, right? I can treat with someone with care and concern, even if I'm angry at them in this moment. And that is sort of a, <laughs> yes. right? It's a way of like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to comport myself one way because I know this is what love looks like, even though I feel resentment inside. That's love. That's caring, right? Looks like a duck, walks like a duck, right? <laughs> and, and and it happens at the very end of the chapter and it happens at the very beginning of the chapter. I mean, the text tells us Harry did not feel as sanguine as he had pretended. Yeah. So he's, he's giving this sense of confidence and generosity and, you know, positivity, even when he doesn't feel it. Now, we don't want to stretch that so far that you're just like faking it all the time. But in this context, it really does feel like caregiving, exactly as you're saying. And then, you know, at the end, Hermione is looking after this sort of demonic, possessed figure. You know, she she literally has to pry away the Horcrux from his chest and leaves burn marks because the thing has such power over him. So I see them both doing that in, in this moment, even when, as you say, exactly, something, <laughs> they're feeling something very different. Yeah, I think that's right. And I also think that, you know, sometimes we have to perform a way we don't feel, but also sometimes we have to let others care for us. And I think the locket's a good example. I mean, I think that the, the locket to me seems like such a strong metaphor for trauma. The way we carry it, wow. how when we are carrying it, it affects us deeply. You know, it affects how Ron behaves. It burns Harry. Wow. And it's it's not uncomplicated to take it away from someone. You can't just lift it from them or carry it for someone else without problems, right? Without complication. But also you can see these three, especially as the novel progresses and relationships restored or whatever, you can see these three trying to figure out, okay, there is this trauma that is deep in our history. How do we figure out how to carry this together? Nobody can carry this alone. How do we carry it together? Because the only way we're going to carry it is together. And if somebody tries to carry it alone, it's going to destroy them. I love that. Let's just carry this metaphor a little further. When the destruction of the Horcruxes comes, does the metaphor extend that far or or should we leave it just as it is in this chapter? Because I think it's a really powerful one, especially that sense of even when Hermione puts it in the bag, it's still there, right? Like it still has power. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, as Harry Potter summer camp attendees know, I have not finished (laughs) book seven. I'm waiting for my son Sam to catch up so we can read it together. So I can't speak to what happens when the Horcruxes are destroyed yet. However, trauma never goes away. You can't erase trauma, right? But I think I think we can come into different relationships with it. Part of the goal of coming into new relationship with our pasts is to understand that they are powerful and they are part of our histories and they do affect us. And to to reckon with that in a direct way is to learn how to carry it so it's not harmful, right? So I so I don't know how well it carries to the end of the to the novels, but I don't get the sense that by the end of the novels, all the loss that everyone suffered is people pretending it didn't happen. Well, and, and that's suddenly giving a whole new insight for me on the importance of Voldemort's memory of the killing of Lillian James. Because for Harry, he's learning more and more of the truth of what happened. And that I think that will help him have a different relationship with that trauma. I mean, it's not being done in a way that you'd want, right? Like he's being possessed by an evil mass murderer. So I, I, I don't want to make it an exact parallel, but just that sense of of telling the truth about what's happened and and the growing understanding 
in some sense will help him down the line. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I don't know if it'll necessarily help him. I think that's the mm. trick with traumatic memory. Does it re-traumatize, or are we able to have a memory without it re-traumatizing? That is why it's difficult because traumatic memories are re-traumatizing. But forgetting, we can't ever forget. Like it's real, it's true, right. it's part of our history, and so coming into a relationship with memory which does not cause us further harm, that's the really difficult task. And that's not a necessary thing. Just having the memory a lot doesn't mean you're going to come into a good relationship with it. It can do the opposite and drive right. you into despair, right? right? Whew, Matt, it's just amazing. I love talking with you about these questions. And I, I, it's just incredible how this text always can surface such interesting and complicated ideas and questions. So I really appreciate that. Matt, we are going to continue with our practice of sacred imagination inspired by St. Ignatius. And we were just talking about this memory that Harry experiences. Of course, it's not really his own memory. It's Voldemort's memory. And I'm going to read a little passage from that memory. And as ever, I'll invite you and everyone at home, if you're able to, to close your eyes and really focus on the sensual details of the chapter, what you can see and hear and smell and touch, and to invite you to kind of take a perspective of someone in the memory, and then we'll talk about what we both noticed. So this comes from in the middle of the chapter in Voldemort's memory. A door opened, and the mother entered, saying words he could not hear, her long, dark red hair falling over her face. Now the father scooped up the son and handed him to the mother, He threw his wand down upon the sofa and stretched, yawning. The gate creaked a little as he pushed it open, but James Potter did not hear. His white hand pulled out the wand beneath his cloak and pointed it at the door, which burst open. He was over the threshold as James came sprinting into the hall. It was easy, too easy. He had not even picked up his wand. Lily, take Harry and go. It's him. Go, run. I'll hold him off. Hold him off. Without a wand in his hand, he laughed before casting the curse. Avada Kedavra. The green light filled the cramped hallway. It lit the pram pushed against the wall. It made the banisters glare like lightning rods. And James Potter fell like a marionette whose strings were cut. An intense passage. (laughs) What What did you notice, Matt? What did you see? I noticed a smell in my imagination when James was killed. You know, like a burnt sort of something between burnt hair and uh, and a a lit match or an extinguished match. Uh, I was trying to pay attention to what maybe the the text was not describing, what attended mm. to all the events in the text. And that was the thing that stuck out at me. And it was right at the end. Maybe it's freshest in my mind. But yeah, I just saw that scorched, burnt smell to that accompanied that flash of light. And I'm just thinking how that smell connects with the smell that Harry doesn't pay attention to in the house that Bathilda leads him into. They're both smells of of death in different ways. It's such an it's such an interesting passage because this is, you know, we don't remember our infancies. It's a memory of Harry's insofar as it happened to Harry, but he does not hold it in his mind. Right. He only holds it in his mind because Voldemort's giving it to him. Yes. 
it's it's like a photograph that you see that your parents or other relatives or friends have taken of you. Uh, at least for me, I start to imagine that I had that memory, but I don't. It's a picture that has kind of formed itself into my brain of something that did happen, but it's it's not necessarily my perspective. The thing that really stood out to me was these banisters that they become kind of this, at least in my mind, it's a, a lime green and they're kind of radiating that color back out. And I was reminded of the way, at least in movies very often, that radioactivity is represented on screen, this kind of glowing lime green. And it felt so connected to Voldemort because he was dead and yet he lingered, right? Like we hear about nuclear waste lasting for centuries, if not millennia. And that, yes, you can put it under the ground. Yes, you can put it in storage. But there are so many ways in which those things can never be foolproof. What happens if there's global temperature rise by three degrees? What happens if, you know, A, B, and C happen? That radioactive, that that poison, it never really goes away. And so I'm just seeing that connection to the reappearance of Voldemort and the, the, the kind of this radioactive death that just spirals out from him. It's a gruesome passage. I mean, you asked us to identify with a character, maybe like which character did you find yourself inhabiting as you as you read or as you imagined, Casper? I mean, it was hard to get away from the narrating voice, so I was definitely Voldemort. For no other reason, right? Just because it's hard to get away from the narrating voice. <laughs> I'm going to claim that's the reason and hope it's true. I mean, there is something... His kind of self-satisfaction comes through even here. You know, that arrogance that we've talked about that is his undoing is so true here. And I mean, he's not wrong, right? He's saying James doesn't even have a wand. How is he going to hold him off? It's two words and it's done. He's dead. And so in so many ways, Voldemort's sense of supremacy and, and that he's better than everyone else and everyone is weak, reading it in that character, you feel, I don't want to say righteous, but you feel right. Like, yeah. I'm stronger than everyone. And of course, that's undone at the end of the passage when Harry somehow resists his killing curse. But in this moment, he still feels all powerful. I, it also makes me think about just as literary technique, how authors are able to create a worldview in their readers, right? Because, you know, we spoke earlier in this episode about how Harry's not paying attention to the most powerful thing in the chapter. He's paying attention to a broken wand. And Voldemort has just said he didn't even have a wand. And I think as a reader, I'm with Harry. Right? I'm also not paying attention to the most powerful thing in the chapter, which is right there on the surface, just like the rotting meat smell. <laughs> it's like sleight of hand. It's literary sleight of hand. The author is making us pay attention to the broken wand and the fact that James didn't have a wand and what's going to happen. That's what we're attending to and is paying attention to the wrong thing. I love that. Who, who did you find yourself kind of embodying as I was reading? Uh, this is probably too in character, but James, right? The dad. <laughs> Kevin Homework, but I got to tell yeah. you that I didn't know who I was going to settle into. It was when he, I think he said he stretched or something. He just sort of like, yeah, long day at uh-huh. work, home, right? And just like that vulnerability, right? Like you, he did not realize how at risk he was. He just let his guard down for a second because he was back in this place where he thought he was safe. And that's exactly the moment when, when the catastrophe happens. Yeah. And it also reminded me that Hermione and Harry have been on the move, if not every day, you know, at least every couple of days for months now. And just that that absence of being able to fully kind of stretch out and relax and just feel, feel completely safe, that takes its toll over time. Matt, as we close this little moment of sacred imagination, I do have a question for you because there's, there's such a parallel 
of this practice itself. When we imagine ourselves into a character and try to understand their perspective or, or we see something new from their perspective, there's such a parallel of that practice in the text itself in that Harry keeps going into Voldemort's consciousness and that he's seeing both memories but also current experiences that Voldemort has. I mean, the biggest difference I guess I see is that we get to choose how we engage in those imaginings. And Harry is feeling a sort of violent overtaking of his consciousness by Voldemort. But is there anything about that act of seeing something from Voldemort's perspective that's connected to a practice like this? Or do they feel very, very distinct to you? Boy, that's a good question and a complicated one. I think there are limits to this kind of practice. Like there are limits to any any spiritual practice. Mm. And that is that, like, I think empathy is necessary, but also has its limits. That imagining ourselves into the lives of another is a really important way for us to have understanding, to gain understanding. And oftentimes that understanding can lead us into more loving relationships with another. But there's also a point at which imagining myself into the life of the other erases the otherness of that other, makes them into a different version of me, which is the opposite of love right? It's to deny their independence as beings who are not me. It means that they are not mysterious to me. And when, my, when the exercise of my imaginative empathy starts to erase the mystery of another person, then it's gone too far. And so I think this was not your question, right? One of the things that's complicated about the relationship between Harry and Voldemort is that they are so closely bound. They can inhabit each other's minds fully, but not really, right? Because Voldemort doesn't really know what Harry's feeling, where his strength really is. There still is mystery. And it's almost because Voldemort believes there is no mystery that he remains vulnerable, right? Yes. And so these are also the limits. And in this case, limits which are a weakness to him. But those limits can also become, if we don't pay attention to those limits, they can become tools for us to hurt other people too. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. That's beautiful. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. 
Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Our voicemail today is from Bronwyn. And just a little heads up, she does talk about suicide. So if you'd like to skip ahead three or four minutes, you can, and you can rejoin us for blessings. Hi, Vanessa, Casper, Ariana, and everyone else part of the Sacred Text team. My name is Bronwyn. I'm calling from Toronto, and I'm calling in response to a small point of discussion revolving around Moody's Eye in your episode on ownership, book seven, chapter 15. A small content warning that I'm going to reflect on death, suicide, and grief. In the discussion, Casper brought up that Moody would have wanted Harry and the trio to use the eye instead of burying it. It made me think a bit on the concept of who owns grief and what or who grief is for, as it's something I've been reflecting on a lot this past year. Last summer, one of my best friends, Catherine, died of suicide, and I've been really struggling ever since, especially since I know that she would disapprove of how much she is missed by so many people and the way we miss her. As an example, her mother is planning on getting a small sculpture of Catherine to sit by her graveside, something that Catherine would have hated as she did not think she was beautiful nor someone deserving to be remembered. She would not understand the amount of thought we still give her, believing our time could be better spent. What Casper said helped me see that Harry and I are doing what we need to in order to grieve in a way that helps us, since we can no longer help the person we loved and lost. It's helped me see that as much as I want to honor Catherine's memory, Grief is a way of processing and remembering for the living. So I'd like to bless Harry for this moment, as well as myself and anyone else who is grieving, mostly because I feel like I need it. It's now time we care for ourselves and keep fighting through this difficult time while also remembering our loved ones in our own way. Thank you so much for all of your work on the podcast. And Casper, you'll be missed. Bye. Thank you, Bronwyn, for your voice memo, and I'm, I'm so sorry for the loss of your friend and for the, the continued grief that you and all those who loved Catherine are facing. You know, this is actually, as a, as a minister, this is part of the way I make my living is I, I plan funerals with folks. And I have to tell you that in nearly every conversation, there is some tension between what the family believes the deceased would have wanted and what the family needs to heal. And these are complicated conversations and there's no right or wrong answer. But I think, you know, just having the conversation with thoughtfulness and with integrity and holding the memory of the person that you've lost close as you have those conversations is the only appropriate way forward in it. And so I'm really grateful to hear your voice and to hear you share your memories of your friend, Catherine. Thank you, Bronwyn. Matt, it's time for us to offer a blessing as we always do. And Without Vanessa here, I feel a little responsibility to continue her tradition of blessing a woman. So I am going to bless uh, Bathilda 
And of course, she's not actually present in this chapter. Her body is being used in this grotesque way, so much so that Harry can't really even describe to Hermione what he sees when Nagini appears out of her body. But it's not just her body that's being used. We see that her belongings have been pilfered. Photographs have been taken out of their frames by Rita Skeeter. And so even in death, I feel like Bathilda's being mocked. She's being belittled. And so I just want to give her a blessing to bless her for her dignity and her inherent goodness and worthiness, which seems so absent in what we get to see in this chapter. How about you, Matt? Who is your blessing for today? So I had a, I had a plan for a blessing before we started, but I, it's changed over the course of our conversation. Ooh, juicy. Yeah, it's, this is not to withhold a blessing from anybody. I can bless that person privately. Um, <laughs> I want to bless the person who wrote that first line on the sign yeah. and said, we're with you, Harry. Mm. You imagine the person writing and thinking, maybe it'll come to nothing. Like I didn't expect mm. it to give rise to a community of support. Didn't expect it ever to be seen by by Harry himself necessarily. But this person felt that she or he could not but speak and so spoke. And in his, you know, in these moments of his greatest isolation, it signaled to Harry the community that still exists around him, the community of support and love that still exists around him. So whoever that person is, whoever they are, Blessings. Thank you, Matt. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and join the common room to have a conversation about this episode and every other. You can join our local groups and become a member of our Patreon. We've just switched up our perks and are so grateful for your support. You can always leave us a review on iTunes, send us a voicemail, or join the community classes that are happening at this very moment. On Tuesdays, Vanessa will be leading a Harry Potter and the Sacred Text class, reading The Sorcerer's Stone and Chamber of Secrets. And on Thursdays, Vanessa is leading a fan fiction writing class, where she will be helping you stretch your empathy muscles. Next week, Vanessa will be back and we'll be reading through chapter 18, The Life and Lies of Albus Dumbledore, through the theme of youth. This episode was produced by Not Sorry Productions. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Boll, and we're distributed by Acast. A big thanks to Bronwyn for her voicemail today. And of course, to Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Megan Kelly, Stephanie Purcell, and our beloved future co-host, Matthew Potts. Thank you so much for being with us, Matt. Thank you. We'll be with you again next week. Is it Bathilda? Is it? Is it Bathilda? I thought it was Batilda. I kind of, she could be German, but there's no H in Matilda. There sometimes is, isn't there? If you're, if you're French, Mathilde. Oh, well. Well, I, what am I supposed to say? I'm going to say Matilda. Is that okay? Is that going to put me on the outs with the Harry Potter community? Okay. Yeah, you're going to be immediately canceled, <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs>